Welcome. This podcast is entitled The Stampede City Sisters Community Talks because people are dying and these are important topics. This is our very first episode and we will be discussing addiction, harm reduction, and the opioid crisis. Your podcast host is Sister Jack Alicious with guest Miss S. Tank. Our podcast was produced by Sister Baradol from Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence of the Long Cedar Canoe. Hello there, I'm Sister Jack Alicious from the Stampede City Sisters. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a very proud queer woman. I acknowledge my white privilege and all the unearned benefits my whiteness has entitled me throughout my life. I was born in Ottawa, Ontario, which was also the birthplace of my father. My mother immigrated from County Westmeat, Ireland, and I am the fifth of eight children. I recognize that Ottawa is located on the unceded territories of the Algonquin and the Anishinaabe Nation. I would like to give a shout out to the Black Chat Podcast from Vancouver for the lovely idea of doing a land acknowledgement for your birthplace. Today, our podcast is on the banks of the Elbow River in the Calgary neighborhood of Mission. We do a land acknowledgement to give back a sense of identity by honoring the original caretakers of the land we are on which for us in Calgary is Treaty 7. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 First Nations, the Pakani First Nation, the Sisaka First Nation, the Ghana First Nation, the Stony Nakoda First Nations, and the Tutsina First Nation. We acknowledge the ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy and the home of Métis Region 3. Some folks who listen to the content in this podcast may find our discussion on childhood trauma, addiction, and drug overdose triggering. We offer this triggering warning so you can prepare emotionally or forego listening to this podcast. On this podcast, I like to have the guest introduce themselves so that we don't miss any of the juicy parts. I'd like to have you welcome Miss S. Tank. Hi, I'm Stasha. I'm very excited to be interviewed today about the radical notion that everyone deserves access to health care. And I'm quite honored that we're having this talk down by the river. Oh, you want me to say something about me? (laughs) Oh, yes. Who am I? Um, I'm Stasha, and I've had a long um, uh, journey uh, doing harm reduction in the community in my personal and professional life, and I'm glad we're going to talk about these radical ideas that everyone deserves life and the basic necessities of life such as housing, safety, food, food, and we're going to talk about justice and um, access. Where were you born? What's your land acknowledgement? Oh, where was I born? I'm born um, where the Elbow River and the Bow River meet. It's Treaty 7 territory. We're going to, or you already did the land acknowledgement, right. right? And I do, when we do the land acknowledgement, I have trouble with the, like, like playing on this land, even though we are, 
um, but it's not consensual. It's like the it's like dancing on the grave of, of genocide there. So I don't know how to adjust my land acknowledgement with that like critique in mind, but I'm working on it. Um, I like to say my land acknowledgement that yeah. we give identity back to the people that were the stewardship of the land, and I I leave I leave out the part that we work and play on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I believe that um, it's not ours. Yeah, that's the important part, and it's still like not even the beginning of trying to have reparations about that relationship that we still benefit from both of us oh, on this land, and that's why like it it is absurd and um, that we have to have a conversation about that all people deserve access to health care. When we think about all people deserving access to health care, it starts really early. It starts um, very young. Yeah, prevention is key in harm reduction. People don't always think about that when we're talking about harm reduction. Things like identifying how poverty and child abuse, uh, inequality in our society contribute to things like homelessness, that it didn't come from nowhere. Racism. Yeah segregation, social isolation, all yeah. of those things play a, a key factor in it. And they're traumatizing things, like facing racism every day, facing poverty every day, it, it harms us at a physical level. Our nervous systems, our, how our bodies work. And You're constantly in a state of stress that yeah. never goes away. Yeah. Because you never know when it's going to end. Yeah, and we're not meant to have to live with PTSD that is constantly being compounded. So let's talk a little bit about that you, um, you have your PhD in social work <laughs> and you're um, a bit of a radical anti-social worker um, and you have lots of ideas yeah. on how social work and I have many friends that are social workers and I love Me and too. appreciate the work that people do but we want to talk sometimes about how social work can actually, when you think about challenging the binary, how things can um, actually lead to oppressive practices yeah. when we view one, um, one, one group, say, Caucasian over black as being superior, and then if we approach our social work practices that way, we're really leading to some oppressiveness. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Thanks, Jack. I like this invitation. Yeah, I, I have trouble with social work, which I have studied to the max, and I've practiced um, mostly youth work, but work with people who are living homeless and, um, and living with trauma. And the main um, commonality is trauma, and I feel that social work doesn't listen to the people that we work with. And I, it, it serves the funders, it doesn't serve the people that we claim to serve. Um, and it doesn't respect that there are different ways to do things. There are different ways to live. And it doesn't mean that someone deserves to die or be eternally punished because of choices that they make, you know. Well, we were talking just before we, we started the podcast about... Um, you know, my own story is that I've always, I've always searched for my own agency, for, for yes. who I am and how I want to live in the world. And through doing that, um, you know, being, I was married for 18 years in a heterosexual relationship. I have three beautiful kids. I am now um, extremely proud of my queerness. 
but along the way to my agency, I worked really hard at, at trying to become who I felt I really was. Yes. And, and in those moments, I know that sometimes uh -huh. I did harm and harm was done to me um, in, in, my, in my life experiences. So I approach my work and I also work in the nonprofit sector and have been doing so for 30 years with people with disabilities, complex needs, addictions, mental health, people coming out of justice, domestic violence, sexual violence. I have always paid attention in my work to being ethical about what is this person's agency and how dare I stand in the way of how they need to live their life or the choices they need to make. And they may not align with my choices, but I have no right to say that I can't stand and take this journey with you because I don't believe in the things you're doing. Well, I'm glad we're listing things I like about you, Jack. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. Um, I, in, in your education, you get farther and farther away from the people who you're supposed to serve. And that seems backwards to me in terms of the knowledge that needs to be brought forward. And you always do that in your work. The idea that that we don't know what we're doing and we need to learn and the people who know what they need to stay alive are doing the things that they need to stay alive. Experts and in their own story. We need yes, to listen. That's a good way to say it. We need to, um, we really need to hold space for people. So when we're, when we're talking a, a little bit about this, do you want to go a little bit more into challenging the binaries when it comes to addiction? Ooh, yes. Like... So the main thing about, I, I kind of became a social worker because I wanted to infiltrate because they had so much power in my lives, my and my friends' lives, and I wondered how how they had been granted this kind of power to tell other oh, people how to live, how to raise their kids, and, and pervasively a, a profession of white women and a, a way to for white women to have power over those kind of things. Like a social worker can come into your house and look at what's in your kitchen cupboards. A cop can't do that, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of um, agents of the state killing people of color. Mm -hmm. Like we know that happens in healthcare, in mm -hmm. the police systems. We know social workers doing that. Mm -hmm. And there's no, not enough work at trying to challenge that trying mm -hmm. not to um, have racism in all our systems, have sexism in all our systems, like have this constantly reinforced. Mm -hmm. The oppression just is endless. Yeah. And you can't see past it. And you can't, like, if you, if we admitted that we're part of it, right? Mm -hmm. If we reflected on how we are the oppressor more than how other things are, you know, we're like, oh, this is happening over here. That's true. But we have control over ourselves. <laughs> and so social work didn't question itself enough for me in terms, in terms of systems. You know, who has access to a dentist in Canada, mm -hmm. in Alberta, in Calgary? And who doesn't? And who the fuck decided that, <laughs> right? Like, True. who could have teeth? You know, oh, so... So when you, when you talk about this and you're looking at it with your um, level of reaching the maximum you can in the social work sector in education, <laughs> what changes can you bring forth yourself and what changes can 
what changes can someone else bring? And what, I, what I'll bring the next question I think would be really interesting is, has someone who had three children, I was very privileged because I, um, I had a good job, I had a husband who had a good job, so we were making a middle class income. My kids really never wanted or needed for anything. That's not everybody's story. So how do you teach new social work students or people when you have this dialogue? What are some of the things they can do to bring this forward, change it, and make a plan? Well, <laughs> well, I used to um, teach social work students in universities, and I saw those systems reinforce the same inequalities of who has access to going to university, who has access to textbooks, textbooks being written primarily by white, white people. people, primarily by people who had a middle class upbringing, a middle class life, like it's geared toward it's geared toward Caucasian people for sure. All the education it's okay to is say white Jack. White Caucasian. White, white is the white, thing. White is white. Later we'll look up Caucasian. Yeah. And what it actually means from the Caucasus Mountains is not white people. Did you say Caucasus? Yes. Like Caucasus. Like Caucasus. <laughs> I know how you're spelling that, Jack. Okay. We'll look it up later. Um, yeah, it's just because white people have trouble saying that we're white people, and we it's part of acknowledging our privilege, that it's an actual, we, we do have privilege as a group. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, you can be poor, you can be struggling, you can, all these things can happen, but it's not because you're white. Like, I, I know that I was not arrested for doing things, the same things, and people of color were, like, at many times in my life, mm -hmm. and that... How it wasn't because you compounds. were white. Yeah, mm -hmm. how that compounds over a lifetime. So, mm -hmm. Well, but. there was just a story that came out in the States of a, a young man when he was 18. He uh, stole $50 and he served 33 mm -hmm. years in prison for stealing $50. And yeah. in 33 years, our mindset never changed to take this young man out of prison and, and allow him to have, have a life. Yeah, we. that's the people we work with. That's right. Who have been through the child welfare system, through prison through the shelter system, mm -hmm. through living on the street, camping out, outside in this environment, like, yeah. So how would, a, how would someone, if, if people are listening to this and they're, they want to help someone, and sometimes people come to their friends for assistance before they'll go to social workers or before they'll go to agencies because they don't trust it, how, how can they fight through this and, and how do they find an, an ally within a social work practice? Well, I wish they'd tell me, you know, <laughs> been searching for that for 40 years. I like how the crow is on the podcast now. I know. That's Vancouver nice. crow. That's nice. Um, that's a big question. I, I don't think professions are going to change the world. <laughs> I think that professions like social work, like getting paid to care, that idea, and then further saying that you'll fight for social justice. See, the crow knows better than us. Yep. Yeah, that crow. <laughs> Seen it all. Yes, exactly. And it's simpler. It's like, yes, we have to reconnect with the land, admit that we're part of the earth, mm -hmm. stop cutting our own arm off and hitting ourselves in the head with it as capitalism encourages us to do you know when i think forward of what we're going to talk about during this podcast addiction and um, statistics and people people we have lost mm -hmm. the cost of addiction what exactly is addiction 
What I really want to do, though, is, is they're very heavy topics, and this is a heavy time in the world. I'd like to offer some strategies and some hope for people so that we, we leave um, our series of podcasts with people feeling like they're armed with a bit of knowledge, that they're armed um, with a really nice set of, of boots that they can do their own marching Aww. and find their own self-agency and, <laughs> and have some maybe maybe one or two ideas on if they're facing the social work system how they can access it with a bit of clout oh that's a, like people with privilege need to uh, lend that privilege to navigating those kind mm-hmm. of systems like white people need to show up sometimes and just be uh, follow directions you know just listen mm-hmm. and that is not happening and this this is a time where white supremacists are killing people on the streets of North America, be they cops or or uh, engaged yep. citizens, you know. Even youth. Yeah, of course, of yeah. course, because it's being rewarded and encouraged and there's Celebrated. no consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying and we should uh, be reacting like it's terrifying, like it's <laughs> a real problem. Again, is there something that you think when um, when some of our guys are accessing systems, and we talked about you and I sitting in those system chairs frustrated yeah. with our colleagues and listening to some of the things that, that they're saying or not saying and not holding space and they're not listening, actively engaged in the, in the process. What's a takeaway? What's a positive takeaway for someone if they're in the systems or, or if they know someone that has to go through systems? What's something that they can arm themselves with to maybe move forward even an inch well we have to change the systems like i'm not i can't do reformist stuff like like trying to change trying to make it slightly better for people who are closer to this this idea of like um a white rich able-bodied man being the ideal and if you're not that you're you're fucked yep. and you can't you don't deserve to live <laughs> you know <laughs> um that's a bad plan for a society um so we, we have to fix that because our our so people in Lethbridge who the uh, f- fucking government jack yeah um, we know we know tell it sh- sister they shut down the supervised consumptions um, site in Lethbridge, one of the most, I think it's the most used uh, consumption site We're in We're going to talk some Canada. statistics. It was, this yes. colonial wasteland. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people didn't die because of the services that were provided there. It shows it works. It is harm reduction in action, ground level harm reduction. Yeah, and it's such bullshit because now the community's like, there's needles everywhere. Oh, who could have predicted? Like, we told them that in, in reports for 25 years. So harm reduction, go outside yeah. and contain buckets and yeah. pick those up with Yeah, people were taking pride in their community. Yeah. They were not dying when they overdosed. Mm-hmm. You know, they had access to other harm reduction supplies. Like, And what is a life worth? Exactly. Why, like, it's, it is, it has to be that we judge a society by how it treats its people in prison people who are homeless people who are different intellectually neurocognitively what, this yeah. bullshit norm mm-hmm. idea <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and that's why i think celebrating 
things that we do that are far away from that. So, so the government closed the safe consumption site. A bunch of healthcare workers and peer support workers and people who give a shit about people dying in their community set up a tent. And this has been happening in Toronto, other places where if your government's not going to do it and you know that the government is actually saying that those people can die and, and basically that, yeah and mm -hmm. we don't care we're not going to spend money on that mm -hmm. then you, the community needs to step up and especially people with privilege so this community did set up and yes. they set up a tent and, and the outcome of that is well they're risking they're risking their their liberty mm -hmm. <laughs> um being to help fined. other people live yes and uh, I'll send you the links because we can donate. Yes, um, and we can attach defense. links to the podcast. Yes. yes, because that's a real thing. That's people who care showing up for their... Those are our neighbors. Those are our community members. And if you don't think about it like that, it's because of the dehumanization. You know, people... The main reason that people use drugs is because they've experienced trauma and severing from relationships from community from belonging mm -hmm. and so continuing to reject them arrest them punish them it it doesn't work we know it doesn't work because we've been doing it <laughs> for so long i live with it doesn't work on a daily basis <laughs> so long. you yeah. know and there's there's no there's no hope there's no compassion no empathy there is no moving forward we're just in this vicious circle of of oppression. Yeah, no of, wonder people are yeah. in despair. Mm -hmm. You fucking assholes. Like that, when I, when I say <laughs> you fucking assholes, I mean social work, I mean mm -hmm. everyday people, I mean that we're both, we're always like, you know, those selves are not separate. And that's why, like, I, the most important work I've done is, is a community kitchen with homeless youth. That was the most ethical way to work because everyone contributed. We we all uh, were part of it. Everything was equal. Mm -hmm. We decided what to make for dinner based on people's strengths. Mm -hmm. And then the problems that you run into is like you can't afford cheese. You don't have enough funding for cheese. And someone wants to shoplift it to contribute because that's their way <laughs> well, of contributing. Well, they're using their skill sets. But then they're risking more than me when, if right. I could buy the cheese, right? And and that those inequalities remain because the community kitchen was a little bubble of justice, but it didn't change the the uh, the huge overarching facing racism every day or not. You know, like mm -hmm. those kind of traumas. Well, and I think I think our our homeless population is chronically the poster child for everything society doesn't want to see. Oh, they're, of they're forever, it makes it they're, visible. Oh, they're forever. Our, our, like, you know, if you ask someone what a homeless person looks like, the first thing they're going to tell you is either they're a drunk Indian or they're disheveled and they're they're stealing out of your car or breaking into your house criminal. or they're using drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Always a criminal element. Always a shame and a stigma attached to it. I like I like the youth kitchen and I you know it saddens me that a young person would think they'd have to shoplift for cheese that you know that's not my experience. That's expensive stuff. It's expensive man. cheese and that you can't <laughs> that you can't take something as creative as a community kitchen for homeless youth and get someone to fund the cheese. 
part of the problem is funding what? Where yeah, does all that funding dollars yeah, go and who yeah. decides what's important and what isn't? Well, that's why we can't depend on that. That's, that's right. never going to be a revolutionary. It's always going to be freaking cautious and it's going to throw some people under the bus. You mm -hmm. know? It doesn't matter which group of people is being thrown under the bus. It's not right. You mm -hmm. know? It's bigger than that. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly is addiction. Oh yeah, let's talk about let's drugs. talk let's talk <laughs> about addiction, drugs and alcohol, and and um, even cigarettes, shopping. It's all addiction. But let's talk about what is really um, alarming right now. Is mm. and um, the opiate addiction isn't new. It's been going on for almost ten years now. Fentanyl and there's all kinds of new stuff. Sault Ste. Marie just uh, put out a report about this new drug that they don't they don't even have a chemical name for it yet. Oh, that is coming out. So and it's lethal, and I see that in my work on a on a daily basis. So let's talk about addiction 101. What is addiction? Well, it's a disconnect from <laughs> relationships. It makes you seek out lots of people's brains don't make dopamine don't make serotonin in the in the in big enough qualities for us to be happy mm -hmm. you know and there's lots of different um strategies for trying to fill in those gaps and one of them is drugs there's behaviors there's things that really appeal to the human brain and and give us chemicals that remind us of, of love and belonging and warmth. happiness calmness yes mm -hmm. warmth like mm -hmm. when you're homeless and it's minus 30 and you're lying in a tent wondering if you're gonna die of being homeless I'd like to have some drugs you know <laughs> to go like mm -hmm. it's a coping mm -hmm. strategy it's a coping strategy that it's helps survival. people stay alive mm -hmm. and then sometimes they stay alive enough to go to be supported in recovery mm -hmm. to be able to find other ways to help themselves with that but that is not the end goal of of our work oh. our work is to support people where they're at yeah where they're actually at mm -hmm. and being non-judgmental is hard. Our brains are designed to judge, to keep us alive. Is this bear gonna eat me or not? Mm -hmm. But we can also reflect and work on that judgment and and lessen it. You know? Well, that's part of the whole stigma piece that's attached. And, and yeah, that's what can we talk a little people. bit about stigma? Yes, please. Stigma kills people. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> rejection, rejection, especially Endless things shaming. you're born, like mm -hmm. being queer and awesome, or mm -hmm. having a brain that works differently than a body, other people's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like just any diversity, any tiny difference is punished in this society, and that is killing people. Mm -hmm. And so, working on that. We all work on that internally. You and I share examples of that all the time, like battling how we've internalized that into our thinking. You're gonna freeze to death out here. It's I think so we have to lovely put you though. In your vehicle. We are um, on the banks of the Elbow River. The sun is kind of 
hidden by the clouds, but the trees, there's some green and yellow, which okay, is quite Jack lovely. Jack is like vibrating with cold. <laughs> Actually, like I just vibrate period. on their hands, <laughs> trying to warm themselves. I just like to say for the record. <laughs> We're doing this because this is important. People are dying and this is a subject it's that true, is so... true, but we do not have this <laughs> This is so important to us. Mm. So let's talk That's about true. how we classify addiction, the labels oh, yes. that we use and how that creates stigma, how that creates oh, shame, yes. how that puts people in brackets, puts them in poverty, keeps them always seeking services, and we look upon them as less than, and it begins with the language. Let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah, like communities fighting things like safe consumption sites, or you they're already your neighbors. And do you want them to die on the streets in front of your kids and you? So just a do quick fact that a lot like... of the deaths in, in across Canada are, we, we always talk about our homeless sector and I think mm. we talk about this and Tank and I talk about it because we're very passionate about our homeless folks mm. and I think um, everybody is born to be housed. We know there's enough trees and enough stuff in the world that we can be housed and people that are homeless make encampments and then we come in and we tear them apart in some obscure place on a hill that no one goes to anyway. Anyway, um, I just think that we need to, to we need to look at the fact that people are dying in their homes, yeah. that people, young children, uh, teenagers, middle-class women, uh, people, people are dying. It is not the, the homeless, uh, what I'm trying to say is the homeless sector are not the poster child for for overdoses, although they are the ones that are impacted the most because they don't get to die with dignity. Yes, very good point. It's people are using alone, mm -hmm. and it it's hard because of the culture of shame that's about right. that, and not wanting to share your drugs because that's an important part of that, right? Mm -hmm. Of why people use alone, but then that's who's saving each other's lives is people who are there when someone overdoses mm -hmm. and can give them a simple shot, CPR, and then they can live. That's right. We're going to talk a little bit about precautions and, and how to stay safe from overdosing. Good point. But that's why it's now like framed as a crisis. Like mm -hmm. there's been various groups of people dealing with fentanyl as a destructive force in their communities for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, and trying strategies and learning things thanks and to all the doctors that prescribe <laughs> copious amounts oh yeah of, that's that's from that. of medication yes there's some some legal drug dealers involved <laughs> yes can we talk a little bit too um let's talk a little bit about um back back in the Reagan era where he did the war on oh, drugs Lordy. and the harm that, that <laughs> yeah. and the harm that no, those that policies is... created for a large group of people with addictions. We all went underground. Mm. Well, yeah, and that's where people die. Like that uh, it's interesting like marijuana being legalized and what we can see has changed or not changed about that culturally. Mm -hmm. Like still it doesn't when you make something legal it doesn't mean people accept it. It doesn't, right. you know, same as homosexuality and this idea of who defines that and mm -hmm. what that is and being illegal being a um how the D dsm the defines yeah, that yes how yeah. they define that um what were we talking about i got distracted, <laughs> I got distracted well that's why it's a podcast we just world. go wherever we want to go with it we're talking you about me a good question but we're talking about people dying alone and addiction oh, yeah. and, and how we label it so now yes. people are are saying substance use disorder or 
um, alcohol disorder. You don't like that terminology. I don't like any. I don't any like any terminology. Yeah. Disorder. That's yeah. true. Mostly, yeah. Yeah, disorder um, just means different uh, than just say different. Don't say, you know, like it's the same as cis and trans. That's of right. Like why people react to that is we just want to be the, de the default, you know, it's, it's like assumed. we're the number one, like like straight marriage. Yeah. You know, have you ever been to a straight marriage ceremony? <laughs> so exotic. <laughs> or... or it's what's normalized, right? Mm -hmm. So seeing disorder already, you've stigmatized. You're like, you're wrong. You're doing it wrong. They Fucking lots of people say wine o'clock. Lots mm -hmm. of social workers are like going home to drink, drink coffee in the morning. Like there's a lot of drug use going on. Alcoholism it's is the biggest addiction in the world. And in Canada, actually, I'm just going to throw you out a little state, uh, a little statistic because this, this is quite fascinating. Um, it shouldn't be, but it kind of is. Um, when you look at the statistics, and this is from 2017, Canadian substance use cost and harms. They're actually a, a large group that looks at all the research from hospitals and justice and um, from what employees are saying are losing their costs uh, for benefits. So $38.4 billion or one thousand one hundred for every Canadian regardless of your age was um, lost either health care productivity criminal justice or direct cost 38.4 billion to all forms of addiction alcohol was 14.6 billion out of that 38.4 opiates was 3.5 and cannabis before it was legalized was 2.8 million now, when we look at, we talk about those figures and we're all about money, but Tank and I aren't, we're all about people dying and that's why we're doing this. <laughs> so for us, the, the more alarming statistics is who's dying. And in January 2016 till March 2019, a total reported deaths from opiates was 12,800 fucking people. That's 12,800 people too much in stigma, shame, childhood trauma, inequities in health, inequities in education, food scarcity, transportation issues, racism, all the ugly isms. We are harming each other at alarming rates and we're trying to find that warm place within ourselves to feel safe. And when you look at those numbers, it's crazy. 2,861 opiate-related deaths were, were reported in Alberta last year, equivalent to one, equivalent to eight, eight people dying a day eight people dying a day either you're in your house or you're homeless or you're in a support system or people just don't even know why you died they don't find your body till five or six days later oh jag so that's this is what we're talking about and in the in the last three months in 2020 in alberta alone in calgary there was 142 deaths um that's six individuals a day and in the last six months in alberta 127 people have died of opiate addiction those are alarming, scary rates. And Vancouver is astronomical off mm -hmm. the charts. Mm -hmm. So, people have been advocating to pay attention to these kind of deaths for what, like 50 years, 25, more than that. It's so ridiculous. Like mm -hmm. how long we've been trying to convince people that we're human beings. 
and that I I I am tired of that. You know, that's why. Just set up the tent then. It, it's not working. The government is not supporting us. Our commu communities are, are not supporting that kind of healing, that kind of that support from the is, community. Why are we, we spending on the afterthought? Why are we not spending on childhood education? Why does Tank, who creates a youth program, why does that young man have to go to the store and steal the cheese instead of being able to be given it? Why do we have to make people... Why do we have to make people feel that they're less than, that they're oppressed, that they're, you know, if we invest in domestic violence, if we invest in um, people not abusing their children sexually, physically, emotionally, mentally, if we invest in good education, transportation systems, a lot of my guys that I work with can't get to a doctor's appointment because they don't have a bus ticket and then the doctor charges them $50 because they didn't make that fucking appointment. Mm -hmm. So when we look at all the all the cost to people from the very get-go, we spend more on them frigging on their illness and on them dying than we do on them living. That pisses me off. Well, we know how simple it is to just give housing, which reduces those costs, but also people forget, like, everyone costs the government a certain amount of money, you know, to drive on a road, to access mm -hmm. a hospital, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just unequal. Like, if we break our hip and we can't afford to pay for the MRI or pay for the the surgery to move it up and just wait two years like that kind of access is happening it's debilitating yes <laughs> yes <laughs> our society values profit over people and that's why that that's the only thing that makes all those policies make sense we need to reclaim protecting people and making them the number one so on our podcast, we will do a myth buster for each session that we podcast and talk about. So the myth buster for addiction that I'm going to present to Tank here is, if you really care about your loved one, you would just stop using. Well, that's kind of an asshole thing to say, isn't it? Very. <laughs> yeah. So someone who has an addiction, yes, that affects our relationships and um, it harms people around us harms ourselves um, and you can't quit for anyone else you know it's not um, people know that it causes harm like when I used to smoke cigarettes and someone would say oh oh that causes lung cancer like don't you know that's bad for you I'd like throw it on the ground and be like oh never never smoke again now that I know now that I know the harm this has got fuck off um, <laughs> So it's kind of like that. It, they they are aware of that, and it just heaps more shame, which which does uh, make you want to uh, kind of take a break from that shame in your life. And uh, drugs are one way to do that. It's very chemical in our brains about why we're trying to fill in the gaps. And it can become a chronic illness. Yeah. Over time, for sure. So it's it, yeah, ending you need support. Ending addiction, for sure, is an extremely complicated issue, and there's many barriers to service and many barriers to getting health and wellness for addiction. But the last thing to be is shamed because you, of all, don't play that trump card that you're hurting your family. Yeah, and being in a relationship does help people heal. It helps people be accountable, and um, that's important. That's part of belonging is accountability for our choices and behaviors. Let's talk overdose because this is huge to us. Very important. So, overdose 101. Okay. What does an overdose look like? 
Well, it looks like the person is dead because they are. So it's like the if um, no breathing or, or very shallow breathing, you get like um, blue lips and um, they look waxy, like cold skin, um, gurgling in the throat or like choking. And that's why CPR and naloxone are the responses to that. So the person is in medical distress. Um, so you want to check the the pupils. You can check for tiny pupils. You, you want to check if they're breathing, heart rate. Most places practicing harm reduction have a one-way mask. Um, Barrier mask, yeah. Especially during these... Mm-hmm. times um, and that's really important we carry them on us like you don't know when this kind of stuff is going to happen and you can save a life uh, you're going to talk about the kits right what's in oh, the yeah. kit I am going to address the, um, the naloxone kit the first thing I think um, and I've seen a few overdoses in my career um, which I hate to call a career. I've, I've journeyed with some people at their most desperate moments, and that's when someone's having an overdose. And for me, the first time I saw that is I actually stopped breathing myself. I was oh, so, no. you're the first responder, and you know this person is uh, hanging on. And the fact that you are the only person, there was no one else around, I totally forgot to breathe. Yeah, I forgot to breathe. And, yeah. um, I also had to collect myself before I could be of any assistance. I really needed to just be like, you got this, you've been trained in this. And even if you're not trained in it, it's so simple. I'm gonna walk you through the naloxone kit. You just need to remember, collect yourself, breathe, and then do what you can do to help the individual. And if the individual um, survives because of naloxone, well done. If the individual doesn't survive because of naloxone, well done. It's about the care and attention you're giving to another human being at that moment. And you're right that we have to expect that, recognize that it is a traumatizing fight and flight kind of um, response. And sometimes people freeze. Uh, Lots of people stop breathing or start hyperventilating or shaking Mm -hmm. because it is a life or death moment. That's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially if you have a relationship with them, it's even more difficult. Yeah, yeah, that's you know someone that you care about and some of the most important things are like recording the time at uh, the time that you give the shot uh, the time that they come back or start breathing how long you've been giving CPR so those kind of details are important and it's hard for people to do when we're traumatized and we're trying to uh, address that situation mm-hmm. so those roles are important right the person who's writing down the time it is and sometimes you're by yourself, so you just have to be, you just have to remember what you can um, and, and stay calm. So within an naloxone kit, and we'll talk about where you can get them in a moment, your overdose prevention kit. In an naloxone is actually an opiate antagonist, and it blocks the effect of the opiate. Its only effect, naloxone, is to keep a person or to help a person breathe. That's it, and keep them breathing. Most kits contain three vials of naloxone, three safety syringes with needles, three alcohol swipes, a pair of gloves, please put them on, a one-way rescue breathing barrier mask, Mm -hmm. and instructions inside. If you've never been trained on naloxone, and there happens to be some users will actually carry their own naloxone kit, if you find one there, um, great. Follow the instructions if you don't know what to do. Where to get an naloxone kit in Calgary for free. And training is, wherever you pick up a naloxone kit, training is available for free. 
If you're in Alberta, go to www.albertahealthservices.ca and I'll include this link at the end of the podcast. Um, Most kits are provided for free, like I said, and uh, most Calgary pharmacies carry a community-based naloxone kit. Community sites um, that work in the harm reduction uh, field also carry naloxone kits and will provide training. And if you go to the www.albertahealthcare.ca site, there's 2,800 places in Alberta where you can pick up a kit. Keep them in your car. They have a shelf life, um, a short shelf life, so you can take them back to the pharmacy if you haven't used it in a couple of months. Take it back and get another one. There are no questions asked. If police see you with a naloxone kit, there are no questions asked about why you have that on you. It is a life-saving device. It's like carrying a... A first aid kit. It's first aid kit for people with addictions, and it's and it's good self it's good self care to have it uh, if you are um, struggling with an addiction or living with an addiction. And it's good uh, for family members to have one in their house if they have a loved one that has an addiction. Overdose prevention and COVID nineteen. This is the dual public health crisis right now because we are treating um, overdose a little differently with um, COVID-19. All the research and all of the literature says it is still safe to use the one-way rescue breathing barrier mask, but that is totally up to you if you want to use it. A lot of people with asthma or people that are older, um, it is recommended that you don't use the barrier rescue mask. You can still perform uh, chest compressions. If you stand a little bit further back um, and and extend your arms, you can still do that safely as well. Since COVID-19, as we know, the illegal street drugs are increasingly more toxic. They're incredibly unpredictable, as well as the source of the drug itself. And with COVID-19, lots of places, especially in the downtown cores of of larger cities, where most of the homeless uh, people are, they have less access to cigarette butts on the ground, less access to panhandling, to picking bottles, uh, other ways to get um, drugs that were coming in from the states or from other provinces. So we really are seeing an increase in uh, garage-style cocktail drugs that are not necessarily what people are expecting them to be. Most of the people I know that use actually have a trusted dealer or a source where they get their their um, drug of choice, um, but that is becoming more and more difficult as COVID progresses. Do you have anything to add to that, Tankaroo? Uh, well, we should include a link about safe supply because we daren't even dream about this in Alberta, this repressive place. But uh, <laughs> BC is doing some interesting stuff about that, mm-hmm. recognizing that um, that will save lives uh, to address that and cont- regulate it. Mm-hmm. And prescription methadone. Yeah, yeah, provide a safe supply. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I were talking, but we forgot about um, that homeless uh, people are not the only people dying of overdoses. It's people using alone at home mm-hmm. um, and how important that is to uh, remind people that this affects people across um, socioeconomic uh, status. Yeah. But of course, like access to recovery uh, services and that kind of stuff remains rather unequal. Definitely. 
So with the um, Canada website and the safety for COVID-19 and overdoses, the safety protocols that they're recommending, use your substance um, while in COVID in a safe place. So if you like to use alone, use alone, but use where people are close to you so that you can um, have someone reach out to you if needed. And if you're using alone at home, keep your door open so that first responders don't have to break your door down or, or break into your house to come get, uh, to come get uh, you and make sure that you're okay. Um, the one problem also is that uh, we need to find more ways to support each other and use harm reduction to stay safe. It's vital. So if you have an addiction, go to your family, go to friends that you feel safe with and have that conversation with them. And if you have a family member or a friend, a loved one, and you know that they are actively using, have that conversation that you're a safe friend, that you have an Alexone kit, that you can have those conversations and that you will do what you can to support your friend through their active using. Even during COVID, it is advised that you keep, uh, if you're using with a friend, keep two meters apart, carry your own Naloxone kit, know how to use it, always prepare your own drugs, and again, if you're using, stay close to help. Safe injection sites have enhanced cleaning procedures. They do also uh, do social and physical distancing, and um, they will stay with you while you use, and at these sites, witness your consumption and truck your drugs. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add to that? No, uh, I think that's a good... Uh overview it's just it is um saving lives to have that knowledge and um to be prepared in that way and sometimes people's reactions um because that's important to talk about too because it it blocks opioids so that means that you took away their high and that they can't get high uh right away again and it's scary like it's scary um dying and coming back and how that feels in their body and everything and um so often people are angry people run away because they're afraid of um medical intervention yeah medical intervention surveillance like um justice uh the the police being called that kind of um systems interaction Mm -hmm. um and so that that's important is you are going to be traumatized most people freeze most people um get like a a stress reaction to that and it's hard to respond and record those details especially about time when you're in that state so we need each other um and people are saving each other's lives as not not professionals right like Mm -hmm. people who are um doing drugs together and yeah Mm. seeing someone in the park or or wherever and taking care of them like that is really important (sighs) so we should address where the drugs are coming from we talked we touched a little bit on that that's an important question for people to ask is um where are these drugs coming from where are they coming from, Tank? Hmm. I'm not telling. It's, it's, it's out there. <laughs> the answers are out there. The answers are out there. <laughs> yeah. The answers are out there. 
but um, we want to end it with just acknowledging the folks that um, taking a second just to um, hold space for the folks that um, don't make it from an overdose yes. that have lost their life um, due to overdosing but also to the violence surrounded by the um, illicit drug trade uh, by this by the homelessness that they experience um, on a daily basis not having access to health care and food just the amount of loss that's surrounding homelessness trauma poverty and addiction so uh, i'm gonna let tank have the last couple of words here yeah so I, th I think it's important to recognize that these are real losses and and real lives and um most of the people i've lost to uh overdoses what they had in common is um being abused as children and society's reaction to that and the symptoms of trauma um and being stigmatized labeled rejected it, it's a rejection thing and not everyone who experiences that abuse um has a drug addiction and it, it, it's it's um one coping strategy that has kept me alive in my life and that helps me be less judgmental but you shouldn't have to directly experience that to think people should live, right? And that they deserve to live. Um, housing and healthcare. Yeah, housing and healthcare. That's right. Anything else? Nope. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Opiates are oxycodone, dilaudid, morphine, heroin, and fentanyl. These are the instructions for using the naloxone kit, your overdose prevention kit. Please find the instructions inside the kit and refer to them if you require to do so. Take charge. Stay with that person until EMS arrives. If you know the person's name, call them. Ask them to breathe. If you cannot see any evidence of breathing, can't feel it under their nose, or you don't see their chest rising, call 911 and inform the 911 operator that the person is not breathing. Start your rescue breathing. That is called ventilating in the Save Me steps. When you breathe for them, use the rescue breathing mask, and you need to plug their nose, tilt their head back, and give breaths every five seconds for two minutes. You evaluate after that. Are they breathing? If they are not yet, then you go and start with your naloxone. You give an intramuscular injection, preferably in the shoulders, the buttocks, or the very top of their legs in the front. Naloxone is to be given one milliliter every two minutes. If they do not respond, you may, after two minutes, give them another one milliliter, one milliliter sorry, injection. And again, after two minutes, give them another. When you have used all of the naloxone and you have tried all of the rescue breathing, put them in the rescue recovery position, which is on their side, knee bent over one leg and arm bent over another. Inform 911 that you have used all of the procedures in the naloxone kit, including rescue breathing and all of the dosages of naloxone. Stay with that person until EMS arrives. Remember, to inform EMS when you started your rescue breathing, how many attempts at ventilation you did, and how many 
and what time of the naloxone you needed to administer. So remember the save me, which is stimulate, airway, ventilate, evaluate, muscular injection, and evaluate and support. Thank you.